Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with some returning guests uh, talking about Machiavelli and some of his thoughts about soldiers, technology, the battlefield, and kind of the eternal problem about how infantry and technology interact. And for this discussion, I thought I'd bring on two of my favorite veterans. I've got American Ostracon and Lafayette Lee. Thanks for joining me, guys. As always, Oron, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So when I was reading through uh, Machiavelli's discourses on Livy, uh, you know, he talks about all kinds of great stuff, of course, politics and, and uh, you know, formations and what binds a city together and all, all kinds of the stuff that you would expect in political theory. But he also talks a decent amount about the military, which, you know, a lot of people, when they come to political theory, they keep these things very separate, right? They, they don't talk too much about, you know, the military aspect. They think about the political power dynamics, but they oftentimes don't mention the military. But for Machiavelli, of course, in the time he's living in, these things are very inseparable because, you know, these Italian city-states are in constant uh, conflict. And so the, the thing that a prince would do with his military is as essential constantly uh, to the way that he would rule his people. And one of the things that he kind of opens up with as he's talking about this is artillery. You know, and he says, at this time, uh, everyone is very on to this idea that artillery is going to make the soldier obsolete or that that warfare is fundamentally changed and you don't need any of the old skills, any of the ancient skills of like the Romans or the, or the, anyone like that because artillery has just completely changed the nature of the game and it's going to more or less put kind of the standard army to the wayside. And it reminded me a lot of, of conversations that Ostrakhan and I have had about um, you know people constantly think that technology is going to make soldiering obsolete that you know whether it's uh, artillery in Machiavelli's day or planes or uh, nuclear weapons like there's always this idea that technology is going to come to the forefront it's going to eliminate the need for kind of the capable brave soldier it's going to change the battlefield entirely and you're going to not need that kind of element that you've always had in traditional military forces but it's interesting that Machiavelli was you know was interacting with that question in his day and it's even though you know we're hundreds of years later it's one that we still hear constantly so we'll go through a bunch of different aspects of this but I just wanted to kind of get your general thoughts on this first Lafayette what do you think about kind of this constant struggle between the uh, the growth of technology and kind of the assertion that the, the soldier will be made obsolete or will no longer need the classical skills of a soldier on the battlefield. No, I th I've, this really resonated with me because coming kind of from an infantry background, I've been hearing this since I was young and then throughout my time in the military is just this idea that technology can make infantry obsolete. And we've been hearing this for a long, long time. And so I, I, I'm one of those people who have seen kind of both sides of this coin in a military context. And I, I just don't ever see that actually happening. I think, I think this focus on the virtues of a good soldier, these ancient virtues are as relevant as ever. And I think if we really look back and, and do some soul searching, we'll see that losing touch with those virtues is often precisely why we go astray and why we lose wars that we believe are winnable. Yeah, that's a really important aspect. And we should definitely explore that more as kind of we get 
deeper into the uh, talk, but Ashkan, kind of your initial thoughts on technology and obsolescence of soldiering, that kind of thing. I don't know. He might've gotten stuck on mute there. Oh, there he is. Uh, who got lost there? Was it me? Nope. You're there. You, I got you. Okay. Go ahead. Could you ask the question one more time? Yeah, sure. It just, you know, just getting your initial thoughts on, you know, we'll get deeper into it, but your initial thoughts on kind of the, uh, the assertion that we're going to have kind of uh, soldiers become obsolete because sure. we hit that critical threshold of technology where soldiering is no longer necessary. So like I was, I was kind of talking to Lafayette Lee about before we got started is um, technology is going to make a good soldier better. Technology will not make a, an ineffective soldier effective. So technology is a force multiplier for the infantryman or for, for like a, like a, like a com, you know, somebody on the ground with a rifle. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it can't replace that skill set, that ethos, um, and that that warrior mindset, if you want to call it that, um, uh, that is has to be ingrained through training and and uh, discipline and um, and time. And I would argue, I also argue uh, through uh, it's a multi generational multi generational effort to to get a an effective soldier. Uh, that's yeah that's another good point um that i think is, is really essential is that continuity of uh and tradition that's required to actually build that level of discipline so i guess maybe we could start with that first you know in in the discourses on Livy, machiavelli specifically gives the example of the romans and kind of their three-tiered uh system of uh possible retreat where you had kind of the first level of the uh, infantry would engage. And if they were defeated or, or needed to you know, retreat, the, the formation was created in such a way that they could back into the second line that would then come fresh to the forward and they would be able to uh, reinforce and continue the battle. And there was even, you know, then of the third line that could do the same way. And the, you know, the, the infantry was drilled with such discipline that they would constantly be able to bring kind of a new uh, ferocity to the front whenever one line needed to pull back, meaning that really you had to defeat the army three times over uh, due to the ability of them to then bring the rest, the, you know, the fresh line back up after uh, the original retreat. And he says that in many ways, uh, the idea that technology like artillery in his day, or, you know, we can just sub in, you know, planes or, or whatever drones, whatever from our current day, that the reliance on this technology and thinking that we, you know, we no longer need that level of discipline. And maybe as to Ostrakhan's point, the generational training that, that comes with it, means that uh you know you lose that you lose that key feature that eventually needs to break through when both sides have the same thing when both sides have and and he says this again in the discourses he says you know the you know the romans are fighting the latins and really the, they they seem pretty much like the same people the only difference is really this this incredible discipline and obstinance that the romans have in battle that the latins don't and that's due to that drilling that dedication and so when you have two sides that have equal levels of technology the key is going to make sure that you still have those core essential uh, elements of soldiering and that training that you need right so if if you've got two equally yeah if you have two combatants who are technologically equal or or close 
it will come down to discipline and training and, um, and, you know, to, to determine the effectiveness on the battlefield. But it, you know, on, on very lopsided engagements where, where, you know, look at the, you know, we don't like to talk about this a lot because I'm, I'm sure Lafayette Lee feels like I do. I don't like to lose in any game I play. Um, and, um, and obviously combat is not a game, but it's also, I, I don't like to say this, but we obviously did not achieve our mission in Afghanistan and we failed there. And you have a, an enemy uh, force that is completely technologically inferior to us. And yet they still had that will to endure 20 years of combat to the point where we just kind of went home. So, you know, technology in regardless of our technological advancements, they were still capable of achieving their goals, uh, even though they were completely inferior in their technology beyond the most basic of, of rifles and, and improvised weapons for the most part. Yeah, I, I kind of, you know, to piggyback off what you said, something that I think is important is in this day and age, we often talk about how um, we are becoming more and more disembodied in this in the modern age with you know, technology is a major driver of this, but I, I think kind of returning to what you were saying about how sometimes we try to separate, you know, sex and violence from power, which makes doesn't make a lot of sense. And this goes for war is that we are becoming disembodied from war making and from violence, which is a major it's, it's an essential part of who we are as human beings. It's part of our nature. And I think I think you're right. I think when you look at these conflicts, the American soldier is becoming more and more disembodied from the the art of war or war making. And at the end of the day, if you have two peers, whether they're it's a it's a completely symmetrical conflict or if it's an asymmetrical conflict, I think we're really seeing that that you know what he would call Machiavelli would call these ancient virtues of really do matter. And that if you have an end if you are have superior technology but you do not have a cause, you do not have a population support. You know, these other deeper things, if you don't have courage, bravery, discipline, you're not going to win, especially in protracted conflicts. No, and, and I, to piggyback off that, I 100% agree with you where we've had this, it, we're, we're very sterile in the United States as far as separating our killing, for having as many degrees of separation from, from, from killing the enemy. You know, I, I've often kind of wrestled with this and and knowing your background, you may have too. You know, why is it that, you know, everyone, when it comes to like a combat pilot who, who you know, drops the bomb on the enemy and has like more degrees of separation, nobody really blinks an eye when like, you know, talking about, oh, oh you know, he's got a really cool job and, and what he does is very interesting. You know, I'm talking about like the civilian population, not, not within the military, but like nobody nobody looks at them strangely. Whereas, you know, you tell them you're, you know, you're somebody who's been in close combat with the enemy and you've, you've, you've killed people and, you know, you know, 50 meters away from you or, or closer. And then everyone looks at you and, and thinks you're a bit odd or a bit strange. And it was just, um, that, that was always something that kind of, and it still does bother me a little bit. Is like, was it really just the distance between, you know, the enemy being killed and, and the, the technology used is how you're going to judge me as an individual. Yeah. I, I know this sounds a little 
Do you see what I'm getting at? No, I know maybe totally, I don't explain that particularly. Well, clearly. I think, you know, not to interrupt you, but I something I love is if you look back at like Jim Webb, who Jim Webb was always a hero of mine growing up. Um, you know, this is a guy who 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 led troops in combat in Vietnam and then wound up on the in the political arena. And I just re I recall back in the in the 2016 Democratic primaries, they were asking like I think it was like Anderson Cooper was like asking all the candidates on the stage like so you know which enemy are you most proud of defeating or something like that and everybody was like naming things like the NRA or like the very the, abstract like, things yeah all these like abstract political things and Jim Webb just was like stone cold and he just he said something about like I would have to say it's probably the enemy soldier that threw a grenade and wounded me but he's not around to talk about it right now or something like that. And it just horrified everybody in the audience, you know, everybody like mouths agape. And I mean, he got a lot of flack for that, but I think it speaks exactly to kind of what you're talking about is this distance, even a cultural distance that we have from this. I, I just, you know, even like the collapse of Afghanistan, how it went without very much. I mean, there's a lot of anger, I think, in the veterans community, but there was just it was so it was. It was just completely like, you know, three weeks later, it was over. And 20 years of all that was just up in smoke. It was almost like it never had happened. And it was just and, an incredible moment. And and to to even talk about it outside of, let's say, the veteran community that served there is is almost taboo. And it's it's um it's something that's really. Yeah, it's something that I've really kind of had to wrap my head around. Where you know when we're talking about you know government waste, but then you mention Afghanistan, and I was like, oh, we're not going to talk about that thing. It's like really because I spent most of my young adult years dealing with that conflict, and now you just kind of want to sweep it under the rug. Exactly. Yeah. But anyway, we can we can move on from from this specific uh, situation. But yeah, no, it's I, I agree with you though. Like the the levels or the degrees of separation between us and 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 killing um are very much uh is something that americans seem to care very much about well i, I do think this is important though because this i think then speaks into the topic you you kind of mentioned uh, there about uh the generational thing right the necessity of kind of having that knowledge that discipline that uh, those values kind of baked into your society so that when you draw soldiers from it, they're not, it's not completely alien to them. Right. And you and I have talked about this so many times, Ostracon, how, you know, as you often say, you know, the, the, the army was at war, America was at the mall and, and America is just so removed from the physical necessity of safety and conflict and those kind of things they, they, not just and not just with the military but every aspect of life you know people have a hard time even understanding you know where their food comes from because they can't imagine the idea of killing an animal for for food just like these these basic things about the rhythm of life and the connection to kind of what is necessary for a civilization to continue are really critical because then when you start drawing on a population for you know the defense of that nation you have a uh, generations of people who have been completely removed from this and this is why i think instances of things like ptsd and such are uh, so, are so prevalent now is that people are just completely alienated from the necessity of combat and conflict when it comes to life and so when they are forced to interact with it it's even more shocking and when they come home there's no one to talk to about it. there's no there's no one else who shares those 
experiences. And when you have a, a force like that, it's very difficult to train subsequent generations and instill them the value of kind of needing you know that that martial prowess and that and kind of the honor of it, the necessity of it, and the skills that it takes. Yeah, I, you know something that I I think you hit on that's really important is that when you talk to the civilian population when they float like when they start discussing something like PTSD, you know the the vet veterans that everybody recognizes that this is something that exists within the population and that it, in varying degrees depending on the person depending on their experiences. And there's actually quite a much more broad range of what PTSD is, or PTS, as some people will say. Um, but one of the things that I think is always overlooked is that it, the problems or maybe the issues that people come back with, which has that broad, you know, variance between people, it is made so much worse when they go into, it's almost like going into a dream world where all the existential realities that you were exposed to in the military. And then you also distributed those, uh, your stress, your, your the anxieties, your, your solving problems, you, you distributed this within a group, right? You know, whether you were engaging in some difficult, you know, uh, co you know, task or whether you were dealing with the trauma of what you're going through together as a group, but then you come out into this very alienated, disembodied plane back in the civilian world. And then the, the, the solution to it is go sit on your hands in a corner. We'll give you a lot of drugs. We'll give you maybe some money every month. And you're, and you become, you're just, you know, you kind of just sit in your obsolescence. And, and I think, I think that without understanding how damaging that is, we can't really wrap our hands or you know, our, our arms around PTS within veterans. And I, I think it, it's interesting to me, you know, reading Machiavelli, you see these, these values and virtues I mean, these are time tested. They're ancient. And, and I, I really think that that is where we are. We are not really grappling with those things. No doubt people in the past, warriors in the past developed, you know, they had trauma through their combat or through their experiences. But I would venture to guess that we struggle so much more today with with those types of things than maybe they did back then, because you're 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 sending these soldiers back into this disembodied plane where the population is so disconnected from existential realities. The culture is, is, you know, treats those things with hostility rather than understanding them. So there's really no place for you when you get back. Oh, that was, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. This is what I've always been angry about. It wasn't, listen, I knew what I was getting into, right? I, I trained to engage and destroy the enemy in close combat of the, the enemies of the United States of America. It was never about, like, I knew what I was getting into. I knew the risks I would have to take. And I knew that, you know, there was a very real chance that I would have to kill people. And I made my peace with that. You know, we were trained to be soldiers and warriors. What really hit hard is when I came back to the States and everyone looked at me like I was a garbage man or looked at me like I was strange because I had done those things on the behalf of my government. My government says, we need you to be a soldier. We need you to destroy the enemies of the United States. It's like, all right, I'm on board. This is the task and it's a noble task and one that is required for the stability. Well, you can argue against it these days. 
but you know, at the time required for the stability of the United States and um, and its interests. And I was on board with that. It was when you know people treated me like I had cancer when I came back home because I had actually done the job required that really bothered me. You know, it was it was yeah, okay, fine. The stress and the the um, the difficulties of combat were were hard, but they were nothing compared to being treated like a social pariah when I came back to the United States. And my personal answer was that I never really did come home. And my solution was to continue to work for the government and work for the military. Um, you know, and and that was that was the only way because it was just all the same people I had served with in Afghanistan or in similar situations. Because back home is where they I was rejected. You know, when I went back to the States, that's that's where people treated me like like I had a disease. And the first solutions that they gave me for my mental issues is, hey, take a bunch, you know, take a bunch of of drugs that are going to turn your brain to jelly. You know, I asked the doctor when I first came back, it was like, hey, what's the primary side effect of, um, you know, these these antidepressants that you're considering putting me on? And it's like, well, it'll most likely reduce your sex drive by like 50 or 60 percent. It's like, brother, you, you think I'm if you think I'm depressed now. <laughs> now you're telling me you're going to turn my brain into jelly and then I can't, you know, perform is like, guess how depressed I'm going to be after that. And it, it was really coming to the point where what I found out was there, this came from a good friend of mine who I worked with, who was, who was British SAS. And I really had a hard time struggling. And I told him all about this. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have to be like everybody else and you don't really have to conform. You can live a life that um, where you don't have to seek the approval of these people who've never had any of the same experience as you and never will understand you. And it's okay that they don't, but you don't have to live in that world anymore if you really don't want to. And um, I never did. I just kind of went back to work and, and lived and, and did jobs where I was with the same community of people. But that's not really an answer for everybody, right? Not everyone who comes back from war can then just completely, you know, choose to reject society or be rejected by society and then, you know, basically come to an epiphany where they they can go and completely change their lives to where they can live a life that's completely separate from the society of which they served. And it's also not healthy for, for the overall well-being of that society. But that was, you know, that's that's why my handle is American Ostracon. It's because, um, you know, I, I feel like an, an exile from my own country after I fought her wars. Um, and my only way to really keep my sanity was to to leave and continue to serve the United States, but to serve it in such a way that I wasn't back in the States because those that was the part I, you know. It wasn't the war that gave me a hard time. It was coming back home that was the real challenge. Well, and and like you said there, you know, that's very dangerous for the health of a society for a lot of reasons, one of which being your military force is encouraged basically to separate itself and dis not identify with the rest of the uh of the populace and the populace um, you know, isn't they don't know soldiers, they're not involved with soldiers because it's such a small percentage of that kind of thing makes it very easy um, for the government to separate um, the loyalty of the soldier from from the body of, of the populace, uh, which is always kind of a, a recipe for disaster. Um, but but to kind of pull us back a little bit into the technological aspect, but kind of still 
pointing to the unhealthiness of the abstraction here, the, the separation of the, of the soldier from kind of the focus of what's going on. One of the issues that I think a technologically based focus of the military does is it tends to abstract the military from kind of the actual effective solutions and well-being of the soldier and kind of the, the ability of soldier to do their job. So like one one example that I've read, uh, there was reading one book and they talked about how, you know, kind of with IEDs and the war on terror, you have this situation where obviously you're losing a lot of soldiers to these very cheap, um, you know, uh, mass made bombs. And the solution of the military was to go out and invest, you know, like billions of dollars into some kind of aircraft that could fly above the battlefield and was supposed to, in theory, be able to detect these IEDs on the road and, and provide warnings and everything for this. And they sport, they poured so much time and money into this operation, this technological solution, and it never really worked. So billions of dollars down the drain made, made no real uh tangible benefit for the soldier but we didn't have money to better armor the vehicles the soldiers were in or to provide better armor for the soldiers i'm sure everyone remembers that push to like send body armors to soldiers in iraq and afghanistan so we didn't have money to to properly outfit soldiers on the ground but we had billions of dollars to pour in a technological solution for something that never really worked when the more practical well-being of the soldier could have been found in a much more low-tech and practical way yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It's interesting how these things echo when it comes to technology. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, um, I, I want to say it was it might have been it might have been David Hackworth from Vietnam, but I believe he said something. He cited that 60 percent of all casual air, American casualties in Vietnam were either by booby traps or landmines. Very cheap. You know, these are these are very cheap. They're easy to emplace, but they do massive damage to soldiers in the, in the field, but they, and then they also strike a made a great psychological toll as well. And that, and that this was one of the most difficult things for them to contend with in Vietnam. And it's interesting how even after Vietnam and we go through decades later and we, you know, we start talking about air superiority again, and we start talking about how technology will make infantry obsolete. We find ourselves in this same situation in Iraq and lesser extent Afghanistan with some of these things, but where these really cheap improvised uh, weapons and booby traps are being used against soldiers and it's having, it's having the same disastrous effects. And our answer is seems to always be trying to remove the soldier out of the equation. You know, we don't double down on discipline. We don't double down on even like we might spend a lot of money on training, but we always want to find that quick, easy technological fix. And I think that that's kind of a, to me as a soldier, just now that I'm on the outside of it, I'm, I'm not going to go soldier again. Um, it worries me about up and coming generations because I see the same, the same desire to outsource the, the old things, the traditional things, the things that human beings have relied on for a long, long time to just quick and easy technological fixes. We see that all over. And, you know, it, this kind of tech nerd dominion thing that we're living under now you know, that, that's also taking a toll on the military now. And it's not just going to set us up for failure, but a lot of good people are, are, are going, like a lot of good potential soldiers are going to be failed by this approach to solving problems, by always trying to resort to a quick technological fix. So, yes, I, 
like, here's good news, bad news. So bad news, here's the problem is, is the more we rely on technology and get away from discipline and, and basic soldiering skills, when we reach or we go into a near peer conflict where we actually have, you know, soldiers fighting soldiers, you know, um, what's going to happen is that first six months to a year are going, we are going to be underprepared for that conflict, whatever that conflict may be. And unfortunately, what's going to happen is those who are currently serving when that conflict arises are the ones who are going to pay the price with their lives. I, I don't think we're so far gone that once, here's the thing, the first conflict or the first battle, let's call it, that we have where we suffer really egregious casualties, where a lot of people die, it will be a wake-up call to the old ways where the the basic soldiery skills will be revived but it won't be until after a lot of people are killed and that's really what it's about when we when we discipline now where you know it's the old saying a pint of sweat is worth a gallon of blood and it's true eventually i think we will always flex back and be able to produce capable effective soldiers but it's about how long it will take to, you know, how many people have to die in order for, you know, these these very liberal, high-minded ideals of, of technology replacing soldiers are still going to, before they finally are put to rest. Because this is what we always do in between conflicts. It's like, no, no, we can rely more and more on technology. And then at the end of the day, a lot of people get killed reliant on this technology without much training or discipline. And then you have to go back to these old basic lessons that we have to relearn over and over again at each new conflict until we finally produce an effective combat soldier again. But a lot of people didn't have to die in the interim to, if, if we just stuck to our guns and actually followed the rules and discipline and the training that we keep seeming to forget between each major conflict. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, one of the things that Lafayette kind of pointed out was how much the the things, the problems on the battlefield do mirror kind of our problems in kind of current civil, civilization and, and how those things kind of reflect each other. One of the things I think about when it comes to these uh, advancements and re, uh, the reliance on, uh, com you know, complicated interconnected technological systems is their maintenance, right? Like one, one of my buddies, I'm sure you guys have seen harmless yard dog on, on Twitter. You know, he's, one of his tweets is, you know, the, the, the regular maintenance of complex systems is their greatest weakness. And, you know, the battlefield is the ultimate stress test, right? This is where, you know, obviously the stakes are insanely high. They're as high as things get They're They're life and death. They're, they're the continuation of the nation, depending on the nature of the conflict. Uh, and also, this is the place where things break down. This is where, obviously, you know, you're you're uh, in high degrees of of stress. You know, you have everything that could be going wrong. Uh, you know, shocks to the system, attacks on infrastructure, uh, direct uh, efforts by your enemy to hijack or or otherwise undercut your technological infrastructure. These are all parts of modern warfare. And so having that underlying discipline seems really important because if you don't have the ability, if, if you've built this really complex technological machine and you've built all of your training and, and 
made your military entirely reliant on the application of this uh, highly complicated technological network. And then it's not properly maintained or it's not properly uh, rolled out or it's somehow taken out in the middle of the battlefield. All of a sudden, you know, you lose this crutch that has been key to your, your training, the thing that you've been built around. And all of a sudden, if you don't have that level of discipline built in, then, you know, that's a lesson you, you learn uh, very quickly and at a very high cost, as Ostracom kind of pointed out. Yeah, I think one, one you know, you talk about complex systems and the, the, the peers, that are, the adversaries that we've had to contend with over the past 20 years, which I think we developed a lot of of internal knowledge you have a, a a cohort of soldiers who know how to fight in a very nebulous environment um it was always how do you how do you navigate your own complex system but how do you fight an an, an enemy that is continually adapting to the complexity that you're bringing to the battlefield and that's something that is going to be i i don't think is going to be lost in a near peer conflict. And this is something that, you know, it, it's interesting. I always kind of, I like returning to Vietnam because it can be more, it's harder to talk about Afghanistan because most people actually have less knowledge about Afghanistan than they do about past conflicts. We haven't really reconciled with what happened there. But, you know, in, in Vietnam, we had a situation where the you know, American soldiers were demoralized in many units and they were getting killed over and over and over again without ever really fully engaging the enemy, you know, toe to toe. And it took a lot of uh, innovative field, like field commanders to be able to start forcing, you know, forcing an adaptation to try to break down and kind of out G the G to, to, to adapt a little bit to some of these guerrilla tactics that the Viet Cong were employing. And they were able to do that with a lot of success in certain avenues. But, you know, that's the thing is I always come back to this question because technology is a great tool on the battlefield, no doubt about it but you become very accustomed to relying on it too much. And if you can't adapt to your own complex system or the complexity that your adversary is bringing to the complex system, you know, this is where the only thing that can fill those gaps is that it, it's, it's going to be those ancient virtues of those soldiers and commanders that are out there. And if you don't have those, you're not going to be able to adapt no matter how technologically advanced you are. I mean, one of the things that's, kind of really shocking when it comes to you will take the conflict in Afghanistan or you take a Vietnam because it's the two are comparable. Let's be honest. Um, is the tooth to tail ratios that the American military had versus like the Viet Cong. So for example, for, for every soldier, every combat soldier that you have on the battlefield, uh, it was something like eight people were, were behind eight to 10 people were behind that individual meaning it required for every one on the battlefield, it required 10 individuals to maintain everything for that individual to be on the battlefield. So like equipment and, and like the supply lines and everything else. And then you look at like the Viet Cong um, uh, tooth to tail ratio, and it was actually inverse, meaning they could support two soldiers on the battlefield per uh, with, with one individual logistically behind them. And that's, that's kind of the other side of the house when it comes to uh, when you have a new piece of technology. It's not just that that individual piece of technology that's on the battlefield is an effective tool, which it can be. 
it's also you have to now look at this massive new logistical supply chain that you've created as a result of that one new piece of technology, which is like when you hear people's like, well, you know, why don't we just all use, uh, you know, a, a new weapon system or, or a new rifle on the battlefield uh, chambered in something heavier or something different than like five, five, six or, 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 you know, seven, six, two. And you have to really look at it. Well, it's not just that you can't put that rifle in the battlefield. You can, but now you're talking about an entirely new supply chain of logistics to get ammunition and replacement parts and oil and every other little widget that you need to support that rifle. And that's like a really relatively easy piece of equipment to interchange compared to some larger pieces of equipment with much more complex supply chains. So we, we have this really bad habit when the American military of coming up the, with this cool new toy, but then not always um, recognizing everything behind it required in order to support that new toy on the battlefield. So one thing I wanted to get to, and we've, we've kind of uh, talked around the edges of it, but I want to go ahead and, and uh, address it head on here. Uh, you know, technology in many ways is supposed to stand in for these, the, this ability to soldier. Um, that, that's what a lot of people, I uh, think we, we're all kind of in agreement erroneously believe is possible. But I think this is something that especially the American military is kind of actively engaging in. And I think one of the reasons is that kind of the, the current regime has, well, you know, let's be honest, purged, uh, especially with kind of their vax mandates, which are now gone, but I think the damage is done to large part. They, they sent the message and they were very effective in their targeting. Uh, they, they've removed a large percentage of people who they don't think fit their political uh, profile. Uh, they, they've eliminated a large section of kind of the historically central part of the American military, specifically when it comes to combat arms, they don't want kids from Appalachia in the military, uh, and they're they're pretty clear, I think, about that by the targeting of their political perch. And because of that, that means that they're relying on very different populations to be part of the military. And I think you know the from the way that they've changed their standards, you know, the, the way that they've changed. Uh, different admission, uh, you know, and, and now that we look at the kind of the recruitment numbers and the impact that it's had, I think in many ways they're planning on making up for the lack of effectiveness of new troops with a technological uh, aid, right? Like, well, we don't have to have hard charging infantry guys because at the end of the day, drones are going to win this for us. And so it's okay for us to kind of purge populations that might have been the core of our frontline guys, you know, our rough and ready guys, because at the end of the day, we can always backfill that with a bunch of, you know, kind of woke drone pilots or something. And I was wondering what you guys thought about kind of the shift in the military, uh, the shift on their recruiting, the shift on, you know, the, their politics inside and how that interacts with what they, I think is this, this idea that they can just rely on technology to make up the gap there. Yeah, I, you know, this is, it's something that keeps me up. It, it, it frustrates me a lot to watch this happen because I think you're exactly right. I think they're taking a, we're going through that, that, that cycle where you're getting these, these managerial types that are, are driving our military, like our policy on, on training, on how we get, on how we get soldiers, what we do with them on the battlefield. I mean, it's infecting every part of the, 
every aspect of the military and it's having and, and what it's going to do that I don't think gets enough attention is it's going to corrupt it's going to corrupt the military in a very personal way in an intimate way between soldier and soldier between their teams their platoons it's going to it's go it's going to drive a dagger into the heart of the kind of cohesion that you have to have that the kind of truly meritorious um the the merit that kind of that ethos of merit and of sacrifice and those kinds of and they're more ancient in origin i would say those are very important to holding a team together in difficult times and having them do a mission that is you know every every part of your every part of your psyche is screaming at you not to do right you're having to overcome a lot not only yourself but it, you're having to build a team you're having to build like a, a a true functional unit that can perform in these kind of conditions if you if you drive this middle management corporate gobbledygook that that throws off that that really fragile balance that you need for good leaders to be able to lead men in in battle you're you're going to have serious problems and it's not just going to be at like a, a smaller like unit level this is going to permeate throughout the whole force you know we we've seen this i, I don't think it gets enough uh, attention but it's like we we've seen this in the past where this sense of corruption that takes place that spreads in the military you know we've been talking a lot about vietnam that's a good example of this is that there was a you know when when our when our military is focusing so much on body count and i think this relates back to technology because you could you could really up your body count with all sorts of you know with air cover with you could you could you could um you could if you were able to engage the enemy directly with superior firepower you know you could rack up the body count and then as long as you reported back the body count to hire and then they broadcasted that as evidence that you were winning you know this was how the war started to proceed so not only do you rely too heavily on body count which is not a good metric for winning a war but number two then you're also encouraging people to lie you're encouraging a sense of dishonesty that there is a level of honesty and integrity you have to have in these kinds of conditions at the very least with the people that you're with when you start driving these other these these things that we have now in corporate america you know when you start pushing the diversity agenda when you start you know you're throwing off this balance this cohesion this sense of integrity that you have to have within the unit and i, I really think that this like type of corruption it, it's hard to measure it's hard to really understand unless you've been in it but by throwing that off it will have devastating results Oh, it's it's poison to the officer corps. Um, you know, it's 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 all once once you make it to to you know O three um, or above, like you're you're so metrics driven in whether or not you're considered successful. Um, where you know have you have you met the metrics for number of soldiers trained? Yes. Um, did X amount of soldiers uh, score this well on this um, on this shooting range event? Yes. Did all your soldiers um, attend these six training events that they were required to attend to include, you know, like your uh, suicide prevention, regardless of the effectiveness of the training? Uh, did they attend their LGBTQ training? Yes. Did they attend their... Um, you know, did they go to their medical appointments? Yes. It was like, okay, cool. You've checked all of these blocks and you've spent this amount of money. 
by these metrics, we now deem you worthy to become an O4 or a major in the army because you've, you've checked all of these blocks and you've gone to school and you've done all of these things. And never once has anyone looked at, maybe not subjectively by their peers or very rarely. And uh, as long as you've met those metrics, you're going to get to the next level of promote. You're going to be promoted really without any sort of, you know, subjective views like, is this an effective leader, which is, can be a nebulous question, which is why they shy away from asking it. They just look at the numbers, but that numbers alone, which I'm not saying you shouldn't have these metrics to be judged by, because I think it keeps, it, it shows you the rails or, or the left and right limits of what you need to be doing, but to only be judged solely on these metrics, which is what most people are, um, is a disservice to uh, to the military community and, and the people that you're leading. And I think that's a lot of, that's the very corporate America um, uh, aspect of the U.S. military that I find really, you know, really disappointing. Okay, this this is fascinating because I hadn't even considered this, but yeah, that makes so much sense, right? The I, we talk about this a lot, kind on this channel. You know, the the quantification, the need for everything to fit on the spreadsheet, the need for everything to be itemized, and and that kind of stuff. It has everything has to be shaved down. Everything has to be put into the same mold. Everything you need to be able to apply the exact same process. No one can actually make decisions because everything needs to be able to be justified through kind of this managerial corporate type system. And of course that's deleterious to all kinds of human endeavors because there's so much that isn't caught in between, but this is particularly true in a military sense because like your ability to like properly prepare a slideshow or check off a number of boxes or fit as a corporate widget um, is not a reflection of your ability to lead men in combat. Like these, is, this is a skill that has all kinds of intangibles, things that no person can, you know, write down on a best practices list. And by trying to manage the entire military in this way, by trying to make it fit into this professional managerial mold, you necessarily destroy you know, all kinds of things. You crush out. Uh, ingenuity, you crush out dynamic leadership, you crush out uh, certitude, the kinds of things that matter on the battlefield. You don't want someone to just always have to check down the force org chart or, you know, go to the best practices list in the middle of a firefight. You need people who can inspire. You need people who have discipline. You need people who have courage. You have people who all kinds of things that you just cannot put together on some kind of monthly evaluation form. And that, yeah, that's that's an absolutely corrosive thing to do to uh, the combat effectiveness of, of military leaders. So what it's done to the officer corps is it's a it's we've I've talked about it's the rush towards the middle, right? Mm -hmm. If you are a mediocre officer, you will never fail. You may not be very successful, but you're always going to check the next block. You're going to get your promotion, and you're going to get your retirement, assuming something you know. Um, out of the ordinary doesn't happen. So if you tow the middle path, you will have a safe, effective career. If you choose to innovate, if you choose to change, or if you choose to be different in some way, a different style of leadership than what's written down on paper, if you're successful, you may get away with it for a while, but the first time you fail, and you will fail, 
because everyone does. But the first time you fail and you weren't following the defined path, they're going to yank you and they're going to sideline you or they're going to kick you out. That's exactly right. That's that's been my experience as well, is that you you have this you have situations where you're dealing with, especially in the last 20 years, you're dealing with an enemy that is really very resourceful. They're constantly adapting. Uh, they're able to exploit your weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And what ends up happening is that you you will have types that are very innovative. You will have types that want to win. They also want to protect their friends. You know, I mean, there's 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 a very human component here that gets lost. But it's I want to win. I want to bring all my guys home. I want to actually defeat the enemy. And what ends up happening is that these these types, these innovative types are viewed in a very similar way that you you see in complex systems, maybe in in the corporate environment or maybe over in the public bureaucracy. But it's an immediate signifier of a problem. It's somebody that everybody watches more closely and when they mess up or if they have to, because when you're innovating, you have to, you have to change things. You have to do things slightly different. And what it does is it ends up putting a target on your back. And what I worry about too, in the sense of when we talk about these like diversity and inclusion initiatives, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the pushing the, the transgender agenda into the military, we're finding that very mediocre, piss poor leaders are able to signal uh, what the regime wants to hear or see, and that they're that they are they're able to make up for their mediocrity by signaling allegiance to an agenda that the regime is now you know endorsed. And so you kind of see this play out. I don't know if civilians notice it as much, but you might jump on Twitter and notice that so many people in the military that have you know they use their face and name and everything that they that they just you know are constantly celebrating these these, you know, new diversity initiatives or transgenderism or whatever it is. Now, that's not reflective of most most soldiers, sailors, Marine and airmen at all, not even close. But notice you never hear from them. And part of this is it's the same corruption that you see in other complex systems. It's just playing out in the military where mediocrity, not being a team player, maybe not, you know, all the things, these old martial virtues People that lack those tend to rally behind these causes because it allows them to accelerate their careers or jump through some of the same barriers that we all have to deal with in the military because they're able to kind of use like a cheat code and move through some of those same things. And, and what that does is it might it might accelerate your career. You know, we've seen officers do this. I'm senior officers do this a lot. You can see it on social media. But what that does to the regular soldier, what it does to junior officers is it starts to break the trust and confidence down. It starts to kill the cohesion. It starts to signify that we're not in this to win anything. Uh, we're, we're really strictly operating just like you would a large corporation or a bureaucracy. Yeah, it's when you, especially when you see like those sergeants major or you see those, you know, you see the 07s or the 08, the, the general officers touting you know so the 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 regime talking points and you know that this man who or or woman who's been in the military for you know 30 years or 25 years didn't have any of these opinions when they first joined the military and they're only doing it to advance their careers and it's just like oh dude you're just you, you and uh, you see him with the young soldiers, and and the, my first thought is like, God, you're just such a trash human being, aren't you? That you're willing to sell out all your beliefs just to make sure you make it thirty years, and you pull your, 
you know, what it would be 75% retirement. And it's Are just you- like, I'm just like, dude, I, I, I hate everything about what you represent. Are you telling me that Mark Milley wasn't worried about white rage 20 years ago? That's the thing that always kills me is like, do you, you, you really going to sit there as, you know, as a old white man and tell me that you've always held these beliefs. You're so full of it. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, that's something that happened to me in early on in my career as I was being trained by these, I, I had the, I mean, it was tough and it was difficult. I would never want to do it again, but many of the cadre and folks that were training me early on in my career were guys who had just come back from some of the roughest years in Iraq. I mean, these guys were really like, they were tried and true, you know, battle tested. Um, And they, they kind of, they gave me a, a, a good start, I would say. Um, but you know, what was interesting is all those guys who had all that incredible institutional knowledge and experience, uh, they were quickly pushed out and they were, a lot of them were, uh, sidelined to their career stalled. And you, you start to see this throughout the global war on terror where, you know, the, the, the types that really have what it, they really have the experience necessary to train good soldiers and help us to win some of these conflicts that we're engaged in. Uh, they don't make it very far and they get sidelined very quick. They turned into some crusty, salty individuals with, with uh, well-earned and very strong opinions about conflict and the nature of conflict. And then to be coming back to the, to, to the schoolhouse and being told by somebody who never went there in the first place, that actually the lessons you're teaching them are a bit insensitive or wrong or incorrect and they're not going to take it. There's like, you're full of it. I'm not going to listen to you. You didn't go through what I went through. And I'm not going to lie to these young soldiers uh, about what the realities of what they're going to face are because I'm setting them up for failure. That's exactly right. And it, yeah, and you see that that where you have this, you you know, it's been interesting because we talk a lot about this like managerial, you know, the managerial regime and, you know, managerial revolution. But, you know, I, we're, we're kind of seeing this a lot more visibly in the U.S. military over the past 20 years, where you're seeing, even though there were there were this same problem existed pre-existed the global war on terror, but it it really started to seize the institution in a way that I I just don't think it, it's 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 just egregious. And where you have middle management and you have the political considerations are now shaping the the way that we train the way that we even conduct the wars themselves and i mean by the end of it i think every soldier i knew we all we all knew what was going to happen to afghanistan i you know i don't know if that was a secret to any of us right we it was just a matter of time and it all comes back to the same you cannot you cannot replace leadership with a manager you can't manage a war you know, and this is this is something that I think all these trends that we're talking about and technology drives this. It makes us feel very confident that we all we need to do is get the right tool and then manage it. And we'll we'll be able to produce the results we want. Um, but that's the problem. I think that I you know, I if we're going I, I think you're totally right when you brought this up about how we've gone through these phases before. We're going to learn the hard way and there's going to be a lot of good people that are going to get killed but it's going to have to drive a major change. And it's going to be returning back to this, you know, the, those existential realities we talked about on wrapping our arms around human nature once again, and understanding like what it is to make violence upon somebody else. 
we're going to have to change. I just, I hope that we can do that quickly rather than slowly because a lot of good people are going to lose their lives because of this. No, hundred percent. We will find effective leaders. It's unfortunate that we're, what's going to happen is we will only find these effective leaders after we've burned through the ineffective ones, which means people will die. And that's just, that's the facts. That's, that's what it really comes down to. When we don't maintain the warrior ethos in between major conflicts, uh, we pay for it on the battlefield in the first six months to the year in young men's deaths. That's what happens. Yeah, and I think you guys are absolutely right. And the thing that really struck me, again, just reading Machiavelli just hundreds of years ago in a very different world, but having the exact same problems right like the this is a perennial thing it, it's a cycle that it seems like you know civilizations go through it's a lesson that we have to keep learning over and over again and you, you hate to see your civilization have to pay that cost because as you both pointed out the, the cost is in the lives of of brave young men and it's a it's a terrible thing but uh it might be unfortunately the only thing that that wake people's up to the reality that technology will never uh, supersede the importance of, of kind of brave men who are willing to defend uh, country and, and all the other um, virtues that kind of come with a warrior. And uh, it's a, it's a horrible lesson to have to learn, but I think you guys are probably right about that. I, I think the lesson has been learned. And I think the, the, the government solution is that that's just the price we're going to pay. Right. Sure. Nobody's that stupid. Right. We've learned this lesson multiple times now. It's just that nobody wants to talk about it. And so therefore, you know, when it happens again, everyone's going to throw their arms up and claim, oh, 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 what pitiful fools we were. But really, you always knew you were just going to pay that price in American lives because you really don't care. Yep. Unfortunately, I think that that's probably exactly correct. All right, guys. Well, we have stacked up a large amount of super chats, so we probably have to get started here if we uh, want want to make it out of here at a reasonable time. So let's go ahead and move over here. Uh, before we do, actually, uh, Lafayette's got uh, uh, stuff he does. Lafayette, can you uh, tell people where to find your work, your writing, everything else you're doing? Yeah, um, you could find me on on Twitter. I'm at partisan underscore o. And then I also run a substack called Ruins of Corotamon. So it's just ruins.substack.com. I've got some analysis on uh, Apocalypse Now coming out shortly. So sorry for all those who've been waiting. But yeah, you can find me over there. Excellent, excellent. Make sure you're checking out his stuff. He, his stuff. he writes great stuff. All right, so uh, Jimmy Bones here for $4.99. Have told uh, Lee personally, but a reminder, uh, reminder is in order, Lee has done more than he knows for the uh, global war on terror generation as we reconcile service in the global American empire. So kind words from Jimmy Bones for Lafayette Lee, which I think are probably very well earned. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate that. I, I just, you know, a lot of us out there, I just say that we've all been in the same thing. We've all done different things, we've, but we were part of something. And I think there's a lot more to learn from it and to gain from it. It's not just a failure. We don't have to make this our failure. Uh, I think this can be the beginning of something better. We have JS here for five pounds. Thank you very much, sir. Following uh, Wagner's success, I now think Elon Musk should start his own uh professional military corporation uh, to draw talent away from military and make USG even 
more dependent on him. What do you think, guys? Uh, you know, goose that private army for the Twitter CEO. He can he can start stealing the best and brightest for Elon Land. Yeah, it's, that's a terrible idea. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, a, a, a giant privatized uh, a paramilitary service um, that's at the behest of a single individual would lead to some very interesting situations. Yeah, that's probably true, though. At some point, you have to ask that equilibrium point about when, you know, depending on how the U.S. military gets. But I, I hear you. Let's see. The U.S. military is brought to you by McDonald's. Exactly. Right. Uh, glow in the dark uh, for $10 here. To be fair, Afghanistan could have been a win, but uh, too many were using it for money laundering and no one actually had a plan other than democracy, capitalism, and liberal ideas. I mean, I know both of you guys probably have quite a few thoughts on that, but you know, what do you think about uh, the, the loss of military, military missions and effectiveness as opposed to individual interests when it comes to, you know, or ideological interests, you know, we're spreading democracy or capitalism, not we're not that, Hey, we're here because we protect Americans and this is what it takes. Um, are you asking how we could have won Afghanistan? No, no, just, just more kind of the, the, the thought about this approach of, uh, the justification for these things being we're here to, we're we're in Afghanistan for the liberty and the and the free market and the the, the right of Afghans to vote in elections, as opposed to we go to war because it's for American and America's interests. We get in, we solve that problem, and we get out. I don't think we did either. <laughs> no, I, I I don't either. But I I think that's kind of what the question is. Sure. Is at least. Um, I I don't know. That's you okay. Wanna, if you it's not an immediate answer. Last yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm not an Afghanistan hand, but I would just say that my experience, I would say that if we had an actual mission, um, which it, it continually evolved while we were over there, but if we had started out with the original mission and that we called it a day after that mission had been accomplished, you could call that a win. And I but I think that I think that the powers that be were, were never really intending just to make that the sole mission. So I do think that was possible to win in that respect. But I think he's exactly right. Like when it comes to building a nation, you can't build a nation in a place that there never was a nation to begin with. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You could do it the Roman way or you could do it the 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 Alexander way. Right. If you you want to do Afghanistan right, you send you train soldiers, you learn the language, you really learn the languages you send them over there for 10 plus years at a time, or you intermarry them. I mean, I mean, we're talking way outside the box here, right? This is none of this is going to be happening in, in today's world, but you, you literally, you, you blend the two cultures together. You, you have your soldiers uh, intermarry into, into the culture and you, you have kind of what Alexander did in Egypt and a lot of other places where, where basically the, the two cultures became one. And now you look at um, the, the legacy left behind by Alexander, and you have all this Hellenic influence in all of these other places outside of Greece. Uh, or you do it the Roman way where you just burn everything to the ground and salt the earth um, and, and call it a win. So you could you can integrate in Afghanistan or you can annihilate in Afghanistan. But that's almost every conflict, right? Those are the only real ways you win any conflict is you integrate the two cultures together and you you come up with something new or you just burn it all to the ground and and you know destroy everything 
if you if you're going to do imperialism then do imperialism but don't just, just do, don't no half measures yeah right like do if we're going to be imperialists let's just you know call it what it is and be imperialist but don't don't do this soft imperialism where we where you know we burn through billions of dollars and and you know and tens of thousands of lives uh and then at the end of the day we have nothing for it like if we're going to be imperial let's be imperial or let's right. not be imperial i'm not saying we should be I'm saying either, you know, for lack of a better term, shit or get off the pot, but don't do both. Yeah, you gotta gotta pick one or the other. Sitting around and trying to be the kinder, gentler hegemon doesn't work. Uh, so the Laureus here for 10 bounds. Uh, how's your British accent? Terrible. Uh, so don't worry, I will not attempt to read this in, <laughs> in a British accent. But oh, it's uh, oh, it's Tommy. This and Tommy that and chuck him out the uh, out the brute. Uh, but he's a hero of his country when the guns begin to shoot. If Kipling were alive, he might not even say that. I love that. I, yeah, big fan of Kipling. I love that, uh, that poem. It's, and I think that that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I've been posting a lot about this on the timeline recently, just dealing with Vietnam and how I see a lot of similarities to today, but you know, these are these conflicts that we go through. There's been this real, bifurcation between our social and professional elites and then kind of the rest of us many of us come from in the military you'll find you know there are definite exceptions to this and great soldiers that come from uh you know more elite backgrounds but most people come from that middle to lower middle class that's just your backbone and it's it's just interesting that we have been living through decades of what i would call the elites you know warring upon us uh, and then we do all the heavy lifting in these in these conflicts and it, it's always at the ex our own expense. And I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, nothing new under the sun, but Kipling nailed it then. And I think we're seeing it today. I, I really, really like Kipling and, and his works. And um, yeah, it's this is this is also one of kind of my favorite quotes from Kipling. I'm also a, a quite a big fan of of A.E. Houseman. Um, who is, uh, eh, was he a contemporary of Kipling? Uh, I think he was. He was more of a, um, he was more of a scholar than a poet, but he released some poetry that was uh, very much, uh, I would, I would call it, I would call it like good veteran poetry because it's, it's grim, but, but also patriotic, but, but, but also faces the realities of war. And I just really love his stuff. But uh, yeah, all these all these turn of the century English poets and scholars are usually what I turn to when I when I look to uh, my um, my my poetry and my quotes and whatnot when it comes to conflict because I think they had it spot on being in that time period in the in the waning of the British Empire where it was attempting to uh, continue its in you know, it's imperial legacy, but it was, it was slowing down and living in what, you know, we could argue is kind of the waning of the American empire in a lot of ways. Um, it, those same poets and, and scholars, what they talk about really rings true to me. Got glow in the dark here for $5. And he says they have no uh, plan to help grunts after combat more, uh, other than more dependency on government so they don't rebel or, or something anti-establishment. And yeah, I think that's something that uh, both Ostacon and Lafayette have, have both expressed is just that lack of 
of understanding and, and getting people back on their feet and surrounding them with support. And instead, like you said, just, just that dependence to keep, to kind of quiet people and, and shove them in a corner rather than deal with, with any of those issues of people coming home. Yeah. Something that's interesting about that too, is that I think I found it really, it, it shocked me that, you know, our current administration would paint with such a broad brush and pretty much lump m- many global war on terror veterans and identify them as terrorists and, you know, subversive and all these other things that we've seen. It, mm. to me, it's kind of a risky move in this, you know, in this strange place that we're in to take this population of people who've kind of been disenfranchised in some way. And then instead of trying to scoop them up and, and pull them back into the regime, they're trying to push them out and marginalize them even more. Yeah. You know, that's a large population of people that have, you know, interesting skill sets and uh, have a deep loyalty to the country to try to create that separation. So I didn't think it was a very wise move, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Glow in the dark here for $20 again. Thank you very much, sir. Our military is in the same mindset as Germans when it came to tech. Bigger tanks mean more good. America has more tech means more good. This is uh, this is West's uh, over-idealization of tech as a solution, and our money dominance allowed this. I mean, sure, if, if, if you've got that kind of money dominance, if you've got that kind of material wealth, then the tendency is to kind of think you can always outspend and, and outdevelop uh, others. But I think as, as both of these gentlemen, again, have pointed out, uh, the Afghans didn't need to develop a whole lot of new technology to kind of outlast a uh, American leadership that was far more focused on technology and, and their own political ends, as opposed to actually winning combat and having effective uh, units and, and fighting uh, a war effectively. Yeah, this is all just like weapon engineers fever dream of sending, you know, soldiers into combat in Gundam suits one day. This is all what it really is about. They just they they liked the anime when they were growing up and like, no, we can do this. It'll it'll work. No, not really. I like the idea that uh, that all of our foreign policy is driven by weebs in, uh, in the defense <laughs> industrial complex. I do like that. Bunch of, bunch of nerds coming up with cool widgets in a dark room somewhere thinking it's going to be effective on the battlefield. Some of it is. I, you know, there are some cool – it's funny, though. You know, one, most most of the effective tools that we ran into were were battlefield innovations. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, – uh, what was it? They they put them on the front of, of vehicles. Um, it was a it was uh, it wasn't called a rhino. It, it was basically just it was a way. So part of the way that the enemy would detect when to launch um, w- when to launch their weapons was like the heat signature of vehicles, and mm-hmm. it was like it was like sensors that they would use to like know when to launch the the actual weapon system. And the solution to it was to basically just create a, a box in front of the vehicle with like spark plugs or heat plugs in it to mirror uh, to, to, to mirror the uh, the heat signature of the vehicle so that it would go off too quickly or would go off ahead of time. And that was just something that somebody came up with, you know, in a um you know in a tent somewhere. It's like, well fine, if the if they're dealing that's kind of like the the back and forth of battlefield technology development where some of the most effective innovations were actually just made by somebody who was already on the battlefield. And like, well, this is the problem. Let's come up with a solution. Like uh, in World War II, when the Germans started putting up piano wire in between or wire between trees 
in order to like when vehicles rolled by and, or when they rolled by in Jeeps, it would like decapitate people. And the solution was just a piece of metal placed on the end of the or in front of the Jeep uh, with with a little wire cutter uh, uh, notch so that when they did run through the forest and there was wire between the trees, it would just catch on that notch and snap in two. And that was something that they just basically came up with on the fly and started welding on the vehicles. So I'm not saying that's a, a replacement for military technology development, but a lot of the most effective tools are just built around the pieces of equipment that we already had. Yeah, that kind of flows into his next uh, point, glow in the dark. Thank you again, sir. We waste money on toys, which you need uh, men to win a fight. The more complex a toy is, the harder it is to maintain. Bureaucracy has made us inflexible. And that kind of you know speaks to what you're talking about. Those battlefield innovations are oft- often very practical things created by people who are getting, you know, have direct experience and not by those, you know, sitting at a defense contractor working out the most complicated way to kind of deploy a, a weapon system here. That's um, the old, uh, real quick, sorry, just one oh, sure, no the old joke um, about NASA spending all that money and, and all that technology to create a pen, a pen that would work yeah. in space. And then the, the Soviets just used a pencil. The pencil, yes. That's a great <laughs> story. One of my favorites. Uh, uh, Charby uh, Zhu, I guess, would be the right way to say that for $10. Thank you very much. If China were to engage in large-scale war, the casualties will be devastating on, uh, on society due to the one-shot policy. What are the demographic problems the U.S. may face in a similar situation? That's a really interesting question, actually. You know, the very few... Uh, nations have really thought there, there are a lot of nations, China is one of them, uh, running into very interesting demographic problems at this point. Modernity seems to be maybe perhaps the great filter when it comes to this uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but one thing people haven't thought about, thought about, I think, is the is the near peer conflict and its impact on uh, populations. Because, of course, we know, you know, many of European towns and like France and stuff between World War One and World War Two, basically they just died because they they lost all of two two generations worth of young men uh, through those conflicts. Um, I'm not sure what the answer to this is, but that is an interesting thing to contemplate. You know, if we did have a near peer conflict and you have all these countries that are already currently undergoing uh, a bit of a demographic crisis when it comes to childbirth and, and that kind of thing, uh, what would you know? How would a war affect that, or how would war be affected by that? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that a lot of folks sleep on is that China does have a demographic catastrophe uh, mm-hmm. on looming on the horizon for very they, they just hit it. I think they hit their inflection point. Yeah, Sorry. That's exactly no, no, you're right. That's exactly right. And I think it's just gonna get worse from here on out. Um so I think that that throws a, a real a problem towards China. But I do think in the United States, and I've seen this being floated, I think that there's been a lot of talk about um using, you know, recent arrival, like immigrant, you know, immigrant folks to try to staff our military. And I think that that would be, I think that that would not only create a a major strain on on U.S. society and the social fabric, but it would really change the way in which we we confront war and then the effects back home. So I think either way, if we had to go to a near-peer conflict, I think the demographic question for both our us and our enemies would be, you know, a really important consideration. It'd be very devastating to both sides. Yep, I think that's right. Frigid uh, uh, of uh, Roosevelt here for five dollars. Thank you very much. Uh, knowing what you know now, uh, would any of you fight for the regime, i.e., I- I- against Russia and China? That's a. I guess it would. Um, um, 
matter a whole lot on kind of the uh, uh, the circumstances around that. Both of you gentlemen are kind of out of the service now. But what what would you maybe a, be, a better way to say this is what would you advise to young men considering service, knowing what you know now and the possibility of a conflict with one of these adversaries? Um, for me, I would. I get this question all the yeah, time. It's a tough one, isn't it, buddy? That's why I let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll jump a, on this. Hard. <laughs> I, uh, I, and I'm gonna get a lot of hate. I think either answer would get a lot of hate, but I'm, I'm just be honest with you. Um, I, I am definitely salty about some things, uh, mostly pertaining to the way in which, you know, knowing that good people were killed for no reason, that you know, people I knew, that's hard for me to reconcile, right? A lot of this abstract stuff kind of, I mean, it, it matters. You know, I've read the Afghanistan papers, like that stuff matters to me. Um, but at the end of the day, what really hits hard to me is that 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 near and dear uh, component. Um, and then when I think about my own sons, you know, do I want my sons to serve? It's a tough question. I will say this, though. I would never change it for anything in the world. I'm so glad I did it. I loved it. I don't, you know, and I, I know that, you know, there's good and bad that come along with that. It was not a cakewalk. But I am grateful for that experience. It made me into the man I am today in a very good way. And I can see the value uh, that it brings to people on an individual level. So that said, when someone says they're going to join the military, I don't, you know, I, I can't tell them that they shouldn't. You know, I understand the, the need that many young men feel to go prove themselves, to go be tested, to go on an adventure, to do something you know, that's difficult to learn those skills. I think those things do still matter. Unfortunately, we can't really trust our regime right now. And we haven't really been able to for a very long time. But then if I were to, if I were to, to go and tell somebody, no, I would really have to be telling myself that same thing years before. And I just can't say I could do that. So I think it's an individual thing. Obviously, like if we were attacked, I would probably find myself right back to the in the same place with or without those reservations. It's a really complex question. You know, my my ancestry goes back to 1605 in this in this you know in this land, and you know my ancestors have fought in every conflict. Um, it's something that's really deeply it, it's it's a powerful thing to me as an individual. So I think it's an individual question. I don't. I, I don't look down on people who have too many reservations with the way things are, uh, but I also don't look down on people who want to go and, and sign up. But that said, just know what you're getting yourself into, right? Uh, you're an adult, you're a big person, you go forward and you, you have your reasons and you take the good and the bad that come along with that. But I do think there's good. It's not all bad. It's, it's hard not to love a young man or woman who's who's willing to step forward and put on the uniform you know even that's that's so it's so primal to me it's a, it's such a it's such a a scary thing to do to say that i don't know what's going to happen but i'm going to do this and and i'm going to 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 take on these responsibilities now we can look back on it later in life and say, oh, well, I wish this had turned out different um, or I wish that had turned out different. And Oran, as you well know, that my military career did not end the way I wanted it to. Um, 
but I would have a very hard time not wanting to be there for a young man or woman who says they want to serve and doing everything in my power to, to, to help them. And at the end of the day, soldiers don't get to choose the conflicts of which they serve in. And just because maybe personally I got a raw deal would not make me want to discourage somebody from, from having that adventure and having that experience. Because objectively, if you look at my military career, uh, you would say this was maybe not a good thing to go do because it took a lot from me. And I also didn't get to finish it how I wanted to. But at the end of the day, my personal experience is not necessarily what uh, another person is going to experience. And to to dissuade somebody from from having that opportunity, I think, is is wrong. Um because there's so few people left who still want to. And so at the end of the day, I, I never, I never care. It was, it was always the, the ones I was in charge of. And especially the young ones that I, I would go above and beyond for, because that's the ones I always cared about. It was, it was the young, it was the young men and women, the young soldiers, because they're, they're looking to you to, to be, you know, not just their leader, but to, in a lot of ways, you're, you're the replacement mother and father. As, as we've discussed before, it's like I, I, I talked to you one time, Oron, and, and, I, and you said I was really frustrated because I was like, God, all of my soldiers just complaining constantly about me. And, and they're just they're, they just give me acres of crap. And like nobody, nobody, you know, everyone looks at me like they know better. But then as soon as something bad happens or the shit hits the fan, they all run to me and ask me, it's like, what do we do now? Like, what, what, what's what's the solution? And I says, I didn't understand it at the time, Oran, and you were telling me, it's like, why is it that only when things are bad or only when things are critical that they can then rush to me and listen to whatever I say and, and they trust my judgment? And you looked at me, he's like, yeah, you're, you're dad. You, that, that's what you are. And so um, it kind of clicked after that. Mm-hmm. We're just like, oh, yeah, I, I feel I'm still young. But, you know, in a way, like, like the title of the book, I, I've become the old breed. And now I'm no longer the young soldier, even though I was not old by a civilian standard, by a military standard, I was the old man. And um, regardless of what's above you, to to discourage somebody from joining or or for me to say it wasn't worth it is for me to say it wasn't worth it to me invest in these young people's lives, regardless of the outcome. Like, I can take it. Um you know, this is, this is getting a little deep here and you may, um, you, you, um, I'm sorry, uh, Lafayette, you you may have had a similar experience to me, but I'm going deep. Uh, when did you have to go through seer school? Yeah. It was never, it was never about them hurting me that, that made it, that, that was hard for me. They could they could hurt me all day. It's it's when it's when they the the way that I learned that I was really could get hurt is when they did it to my friends, and that's the way I that's what I learned about my time there. And I think it was a really good lesson to learn was that it was never about my pain and suffering. It was about protecting those that I was in charge of, and that was that's a really in a really kind of grim way I learned that. But that's what really clicked with me there is like. 
it's never, it was never about me. It was always about the people that I was supposed to take care of. And I was okay with that. Um, and that's what was so important to me. And you'll never get that experience anywhere else. You will never get that experience in the civilian world or corporate America where somebody else, multiple people put, you know, their ultimate trust in you and to, to, to go against that or, or to say that's not worth it is to say, it, for me, it's like saying life isn't worth living. Sorry, I got real deep there. No, for do you mind if I jump in on that real quick? I'll keep no, going. Go for it. Now, I love what you said because I think I, I don't want to speak for you. I imagine that you'd probably have the same experience in some way because everyone I talk to who was involved in the last 20 years would say this is that there comes a time when you peek behind the curtain, you realize that it's just not what you thought it was. But it's the people that you're with that you realize that you even knowing everything that you come to know about what you're doing, why you're doing it, uh, who's managing it and mismanaging it. You know, you lose people that you care about for no good reason sometimes. But at the end of the day, you end up doing it for the people that you're with and you couldn't ever let them down no matter what, no matter what it was. And, you know, some people will look down on that and that that's fine. They can think what they want. I wouldn't trade it for anything, though. And I don't think that, you know, on a on looking forward, I don't think we can get out of this mess and secure something for ourselves and for the people that we live around, the people we care about. If we don't have that backbone that we got in that kind of experience, there are many people who know exactly what I'm talking about. You saw behind the curtain. You saw it wasn't what you thought. You, it wasn't what you signed up for. You realized that you were not, it was not what you thought, but the people you were with and, and what you were, what you were gaining along the way mattered. It was real. It was probably the most real thing that, that you experienced during your entire time. And to me, I don't think we can move anywhere to a good place without that. And I feel in a way that it's a blessing. And for those guys who didn't make it back, you know, if that sacrifice or the people that we lost, whether you can say it was needless or, or meaningless or whatever, the end of the day, like I look at that and I say, I have a gift of life. I have that experience that is invaluable to me. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Like, what am I going to do with it now? What am I going to do with it here? Knowing everything I know, like the way things are going, the way our social fabric is, the way our country is trending, the kind of leaders, the piss poor leaders we have, that, that can't be all for naught. There's something very valuable there. And I think we can move forward with that. And, and to agreed and to, to basically say that all of my experiences shouldn't have happened or it would have been better if it didn't, or you get those people who, who never served who sort of collect their tongues and is like, Oh, all these people died needlessly. It's like, you know, I never saw you pick up a rifle and get out there. Uh, how clever you were to, to, you know, live, eat, breathe, and die under my protection, and then have the audacity to, to judge in the manner in which I, in the manner in which we gave it to you. Sorry, I know. Go, go Colonel Jessup, let's hear. Yeah. It really does come down to that. You know, he's not the villain in that story. No, he's absolutely not. right. The entire, his entire speech. Um, and so mostly I just say, I, I, I never really engage those people in conversation because they, they were never really looking to have an actual conversation. They were just looking to validate an opinion of which they already had. But, um, you know, I never did it for that guy. I did it for the people who I was responsible for and my friends. 
because my friends were there, right? My friends were in Afghanistan and I didn't do it because of, you know, any sort of at the end, even after I peeked behind the curtain, I never did it for any high minded idealism for, for, for that. It was just that, no, we're in a bad situation and I want to get my boys home as best I can. And I'm going to do everything I can to get them there so they can go back home and complain about paying taxes and, you know, and about girlfriends cheating on them and, and their parents complaining that they're not doing exactly what they should be doing in life because that's my job is to get them back home in as best mental and physical shape as possible to go back and live their lives as they choose to live them. They could stay in the military or they could get out of the military, but it's my, my right and burden to bring them home in one piece as best I can. And that's all that I really cared about at the end. And there were other officers and other soldiers who probably were a little more gung ho than I was. And they, they probably earned a few more medals. And I, I know they did. They, one of them had a high school named after him. That's kind of cool. But he was also a really hard charging dude who put his men at more risk. Maybe it was justified risk. Um, looking back on it in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, objectively you can kind of say it probably wasn't justified, but at the time, you know, I understand he, he wasn't a bad leader by any means. He was just a more direct leader who, who was willing to, to engage, uh, uh, you know, the enemy and, 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 you know, send his men into more high risk scenarios than maybe I was. Uh, I was usually the guy who was just like, listen, we got all this love, this kind of dovetails into what we were talking about. We've got all this lovely technology, you know, let's, let, let's let them, you know, uh, let's let them use a, an aircraft on them or we can call for fires or something like that. We don't necessarily have to engage them directly. Um, you know, we probably won't win as many awards and we won't have as many cool stories, but ultimately, you know, let the mortarmen take care of it or let the pilots take care of it. Um, and I guess that's, that was always my mantra or that was always what I, my code, my personal code was get them home safe as best you can. Yes. Do the mission. But once you're out there, like, like Lafayette said, we, we knew it was not going to be, and it's, it was never going to be a winnable situation. So why put my boys at more risk than is required than, you know, to check the block. Uh, if I know at the end of the day, the mission, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to solve Afghanistan. Let's just, survive it and get them home as best I can. And that was, you know, I can say that now that I'm out, but it was more about getting them home than anything else. And that's, that's not anger. I think that's, that, that that's, that's love at the end of the day. And, a, and a, you know, that's a great quote, you know, a true soldier doesn't fight for what he hates in front of him, but what he loves behind him. And I, I loved my, my soldiers and I wanted them to get home. And that's what I cared about. Well, Roosevelt, it's a very complex issue, but I think you got a, a very thorough answer. So thank you. You got much. your five bucks worth. That's you for sure. Sure did. <laughs> sure did. All right. Uh, Glow in the Dark here says, uh, we, uh, we abstracted being an effective soldier or military away from reality and placed it with spreadsheets uh, Vietnam style. And yeah, that was, that was a really good point by Ostrakon. Again, something I hadn't thought enough about, but of course, is absolutely true and has had a, a big impact on uh the battlefield it sounds like uh glow in the dark here again for two dollars thank you multiple choice answers on combat exams win uh yeah i don't i don't think that is an option and i think we've got one more um got uh glow in the dark uh, for two dollars thank you 
Uh, we're going Soviet and Russia is going more American. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't, I don't not sure. I guess it would depend on the context of kind of how you look at that question. Um, Russia is certainly in a very different conflict. Uh, I don't want to get deep into Ukraine. You could spend a lot of, a lot of time talking about that. And many people have, um, but uh, we do appreciate that uh, glow in the dark. All right, guys, I think we got to all of these. Just let me just double check real quick to make sure we didn't miss anyone, but I think that's all of them. Yep, that's everything. All right, well, we got everything from uh, Lafayette. Uh, let's see. Yep, hit all the. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining uh, me, both uh, Ostrakhan and Lafayette Lee. Make sure you're checking out all of Lafayette's work. He's got the Substack. He's got his Twitter. Make sure you're checking out his stuff there. And want to say thank you to everyone for coming by. We had a lot of questions, a lot of really good audience questions, obviously uh, some, some deep thoughts from the guests on those. So we really appreciate your question, guys. That's always a great part of the discussion. If it's your first time here, of course, really appreciate a subscription to the channel. And if you want to listen to this in just, you know, the audio format, you just want a podcast, do remember you can get this on all your major podcast platforms. If you do do go over to iTunes or Spotify or something like that, just make sure to leave a rating or a review that really helps out a lot, helps uh, get everybody the word out to everyone. Really appreciate that for everybody. All right, guys, thanks for coming by. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.